Sorry I'm late. My wife kept talking Etsy stuff. Uh, I had a hard time leaving. No problem. Were you able to read the file I sent you? I did do a quick run-through. Are you sure about the diagnosis? I'm sure of it. Okay, let's go talk to the patient. Hello, Miss Cooney. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. Thank you. That's great. So, before we get into the clinical diagnosis, it is important that Dr. Pleasant and I show you a few images for our final test, just to make sure we give you the proper treatment and be on a safe side. Okay, sounds good. Uh, Am I going to be okay, doctor? We will see. Don't worry too much. Let's get through the test and we'll go from there. Okay. Thank you. When we show you the images, you just have to say the first thing that comes to mind. I always wanted to do this. I've seen it on movies and thought it would be fun. Here's the first image. The American flag. (gasps) Patriotism is racism! How does it make you feel? It makes me feel angry. The American flag is drenched in the blood of Native Americans and enslaved Africans. America was and is a colonial state. Colonial powers are violent and racist by their very nature. Good job. Here's the next one. The second image is a woman in a bikini. Sexism. Failings on that? Bikinis make men see women as objects. Men are all obsessed with sex. If both a man and a woman are drunk and they both have sex, the man is committing sexual assault! How about this picture of the American bald eagle? Corporate greed? Greedy corporations are causing inflation by jacking up prices and enjoying record profits. The more sway megacorporations have over our economy, the more power they have to gouge customers, squeeze Main Street, and exploit workers. They're doing everything they can to defend the status quo and to protect the wealthy and powerful. Calm down, Miss Cooney. No need to get all worked up. It's just a bird. What is wrong with me? This is what we're trying to figure out and understand. Everything's going to be okay. Okay. Miss Cooney, the next ones are going to be intense. Are you ready? I'm ready. This might overwhelm you. Are you sure you're ready? Yes. Okay, here's an image of a gun. (gasps) Help me! Please don't kill me! I don't want to die! No one is going to kill you, Miss Cooney. It's only a picture. It's not real. Look. I don't think we should show her the next one. We have to. Miss Cooney, brace yourself. (laughs) Put that Donald Trump photo away. There, it's gone. Look here, look here. Look at this collage I'm holding. There you go. Focus on the Pfizer logo. Vaccines. Everyone should get it, right? Yes. Yes, they they should. Good job. Good job. Just focus on this person. She's your hero, right? What's her name? Nancy Pelosi. Are you okay? I I feel a little better now. Just take deep breaths. (sighs) There we go. You're in a safe space. The last one was very difficult. I'm so sorry you had to go through this, but it's for the best. I have just one more image to show you. It's not as intense as the last, but do you want us to stop? No, I want to get better. I want to stop feeling so depressed and to stop being so confrontational. This is the only way. Right? Yes. Here is the final photo. Very easy. It's an image of someone working. (coughs) This is worse than we thought. Here's a napkin. Don't worry about the mess. I'll have one of the nurses clean that up. I I don't want to work. (laughs) You don't have to work, but 
What do you want to do instead? I feel the need to block traffic. I think the liberal lunatic disease is very strong here. I think she's gone full him. amber. Looks like she's having an episode. Criminal. What do you want to do? Inflation is not by Just wait fault. till she's finished. It's all Trump's fault! Miss Cooney. Mega people should die. Miss Cooney. What? Miss Cooney, you have liberal lunatic disease. What is that? Am I going to die? No. This is similar to having the rich conservative fake Christian disease. If we can cure that, we can cure you. You've become a liberal scum. Yeah, you lost a total grip on reality. How are you going to cure me? We are going to do our very best to transition you into a moderate. What is that? Is it safe? It is completely safe. Political moderation has become increasingly rare. Polarization. Everything is black and white and no gray. When you're cured... You will be properly informed and tuned in. You will no longer be blinded by just one side. Yes, you're going to be able to see both sides of complex issues. <sighs> I'm ready. Ah, oh my gosh! Why oh my would you show her a picture of Elon Musk? I couldn't help it. It's funny how easily you can make liberal scum cry. Place. We ain't caring about your feelings, yeah Anytime, any place, you can feel it here Steven Daniel out of space, so we clear the air Any topic, and it's safe, so just be prepared Don't assume, keep it straight, we might keep it fair The news, f*** a page, we gon' keep it real If you tune in, then you sick for real F*** a Bluetooth, we took the red pill Every image in the video, talk about it Different views on the subject, we might talk about it At the end of the day, we just talking, homie Only me in the room, but it's like a party Hi everyone, I'm Steven Daniel, the man with two first names, and I'm completely tied up doing something that only real masochists enjoy, getting my fourth booster shot. Whoops, I mean moving. That's why I have Brit hosting Out of Place this month. Happy July! Alright Steven, that's enough. Go pack your bags. Hi, I'm Brit. Steven and his family are putting everything they own in boxes, driving across the country to their new home. He's rumored to be the world's largest collector of dental extractions, giving him the nickname of the Tooth Goblin. So you can only imagine the stress that he's having packing all that shit. Let's wish him happiness in his new place and pray that he doesn't have any withdrawals from the Disney that he loves so much and all those other theme parks like Legoland. On a side note, Stephen and I have known each other for a couple years now and uh, it pretty much since the start of this podcast. We've lived about a few hundred miles away from each other and we've had the opportunity to meet just one time or at least once that he's aware of. So I've decided to move to North Florida just so I could follow him across and keep a very similar distance. You know, it's nice to have him close, like a day's drive away, but not too far. We've got that kind of friendship, you know, like where you want to be close, but you don't want to live right next to each other. Maybe that's why you chose the next closest college from your home. Not the closest, but the next closest. Steven is the getaway plan. You know, if I'm desperate for friends, but I probably wouldn't want to see him every day. That's mainly because of his choice of cologne that has that hobo-esque kind of smell. It's actually called Nolan's Piss, Ode to the Underbridge. So maybe it was intentional on his part, wearing that stinky stuff when we met. Now that I think about it, maybe he was just trying to deter me. 
Hey, Steven, guess what? I'm still following you anyways, to just outside of smelling distance. I've got some PI work to do with my nostrils, and it's taking me to your hometown. All right, guys, the show must go on, and I'm the host this month. My name's Britt, and everyone in South Carolina needs to help me confirm what Steven's daily cologne smells like. We've got to get to the bottom of this. Hey, kids, it's the Britt Nolan Show, where you'll see that your mom's a holy moly. You won't learn anything except mooning on your neighbor's ring. That's what you get when you listen to What the Brick. You'll realize that we're all just pieces of shit. Too blind with poopy rats on this ass. Me why I'm so high. Drop the pants and show off your big giant ballroom. Use it the place where we can all play together forever and ever. Here is Brick sitting on the beat. Hi again. A year ago, I wrote my I Quit segment, and I read it to y'all. Well, here's an update. I do not miss the cubicle life one bit. I do miss some of the co-workers. I miss having a cool title, and of course, the money. But screw living a scheduled life on someone else's timeline, stuck indoors, salivating at an image of a palm tree on a postcard. For my working years doing accounting, many holidays were missed. Overtime was non-existent because I had a salary, and weekends weren't even guaranteed. I've managed to spend a lot less money because I actually cook my own food. I'm not just ordering Uber Eats every time my tummy has a grumble. I also manage my own schedule and can guiltlessly enjoy brunch these days. Speaking of the people that hate the office environment, meet Aaron Swartz. He is one of the most fascinating individuals that I never knew about until after he died. I came across this documentary called The Internet's Own Boy, which randomly autoplayed on YouTube last December. Aaron was a programmer responsible for the framework behind Reddit and a bunch of other cool shit like Markdown, but unless you're super techie, you probably haven't heard of his other stuff. He was also known for being an activist that believed in the freedom of information. He tragically took his own life while undergoing federal prosecution for downloading too many freely accessible academic journals from MIT, his university. So yes, that's correct. He downloaded too many academic journals that were free for him as a student. Although he had yet to do anything aside from download the journals, the act alone was enough to cause the feds to make an example of Aaron. Despite MIT and JSTOR, the digital academic journal storage, not pursuing him. It was just the feds. In this next segment, a blog post from January 18th, 2007, will be read from the words of Aaron, but narrated by Mitch Wilson, this awesome guy from the site Casting Call Club. The day it was posted, Aaron was missing from work, causing alarm amongst all of his office friends, and ultimately it led to his firing from Reddit. This seemingly foreshadows his suicide nearly six years later on January 11th, 2013. Was it the legal battle that he was undergoing? Or was the suicide just inevitable? One won't know, but I hope you enjoy the read from this complex mind. Take it away, Mitch! There is a moment, immediately before life becomes no longer worth living, when the world appears to slow down and all its myriad details suddenly become brightly, achingly apparent. For Aaron, that moment came after exactly one week of pain. Seven days of searing, tormenting agony that poured forth from his belly. Aaron never liked his belly. Growing up, he was always fat, surrounded by a family of bellowing, rotund Americans who had a room in their house with wall-to-wall, floor-to-ceiling cabinets, all entirely filled with bags and boxes of various pre-processed semi-organic assemblages, which they used to stuff their faces at all hours of the day. 
Aaron had body image issues. He'd avoid mirrors because he couldn't bear to look at himself, his large, bulbous cheeks obscuring his fine features. He avoided photos, covering his face or ducking out of the way when the click of the camera came. For the same reason, he didn't want to be confronted with the physical evidence of his disgusting nature, thought he could not go on living if he had to face the truth. It wasn't until he got away from his family that he discovered his weight was not an immutable characteristic, like the fingerprints he often used about burning off, like the dental records which had caused him so much adolescent anguish, like the DNA he'd heard so much about in school. He would take off his shirt and stare at his stomach in the full-length mirror. It was there, of course, hideous as ever, but also appreciably smaller. Its size, he realised, could change. So. Aaron starved himself, cut down from three meals a day to simply two and then to only one. And even that became superfluous most days. Aaron simply wasn't hungry. He watched his stomach dwindle, monitored his progress on the electronic readout of his at-home scale, charted the numbers on his computer, admired the plunging trend lines. He was doing so well, he told all his friends. The secret to losing weight, he would explain, is simply not eating. You just get used to it after a while. He looked at the beggars outside his window and refrained from giving them change so that they too could experience this miracle. He changed the channel when the radio began speaking about starvation in Africa. Starvation isn't so bad, he scoffed. You get used to it after a while. He wondered whether the USDA thrifty food budget could be further reduced. He stopped going out. His friends always wanted to meet him for meals or for drinks, events in which Aaron simply wasn't interested anymore. Before long, Aaron's friends were no longer interested in him. Aaron started eating cafes, ordering a small pastry, sitting in a comfortable chair, listening to the music play over the loudspeakers. Soon, he stopped doing even that. Aaron read on the internet about death. There was a theory, increasingly well supported, that eating is what killed you. They found that rats on extremely restricted diets, rats who ate very few calories, lived impressively long. They saw the same results with other animals, up to and including chimpanzees. They suspected but could not prove the same was true of humans. Every little bite of food was another step towards death. Aaron started eating again. His appetite grew as slowly as it had declined, but within months he was back to eating three meals a day. Food suddenly gave him pleasure again. He savoured the taste on his tongue. One night, he and his friends decided to try a new restaurant, but when the food came, Aaron couldn't eat it. He thought it smelled funny. He let it sit there, his plate lying on the table, his food seething, untouched. The next night, Aaron couldn't sleep. He'd wake up feeling searing pains in his stomach, as if the food winding its way through his gut had spikes and was tearing out the walls of his intestine. He suffered like this for days, rolling on the floor in agony. Unable to resist eating, but every bite he ate causing him unimaginable pain. And still, he could not stop. Five days in, it seemed like the worst had passed. The pains came less frequently, the pains were less intense, he actually slept at night. The day Aaron killed himself, he was awoken by pains, worse than ever. He rolled back and forth in bed as the sun came up, the light streaming through the windows, eliminating the chance for any further sleep. At nine, he was startled by a phone call. The pain subsided, as if quieting down to better hear what the phone might say. It was his boss. He had not been to work all week. He'd been fired. Aaron tried to explain himself, but couldn't find the words. He hung up the phone instead. 
The day Aaron killed himself, he wandered his apartment in a daze. The light streaming through the windows gave everything a golden glow, which had the odd effect of making the filth he'd become surrounded with seem cinematic. Aaron wanted to go outside for one last meal, but he had trouble making the appropriate connections. Jacket, shoes, pants, wallet, each lay in a different spot upon the floor. Aaron knew they weren't together. He drew lines connecting them in his mind's eye, but it didn't see to fix anything. His eyes just kept bouncing from one item to another. Finally, he summoned the intelligence to put them on. The world seemed funny afterwards. He noticed the way the key turned in the lock, like a hand rotating in front of his face, an interplay of light and shadow, objects and space. He noticed the packages sitting at his doorstep, begging him to open them, but their labels insisting they were addressed to someone else. He noticed the frail old ladies who refused to obey the walk, don't walk signs and instead walked slowly, backs hunched, across a major intersection. He went to a new cafe across the street, the one place he hadn't been to yet. Light streamed in through the huge picture windows, making the whole place seem bright and airy. So much light, in fact the outside seemed to glow, as if the cafe was suspended in the middle of a powerful white light. People held lowered, indistinct conversations, people on his left, people on his right, people behind him, but one conversation seemed to be coming from the ceiling. It might have been a trick of the acoustics, he looked up and saw two speakers staring back at him and listened closely. The cafe was not playing music, it was playing a recording of two people's lowered, indistinct conversation. The day Aaron killed himself, he had a sudden powerful craving for a key lime sugar cookie. It was odd the power the key lime sugar cookie had over him. Aaron did not particularly like limes of any sort. In fact, the idea of an actual, as it was with all fruits, thoroughly disgusted him. He hated how when he ordered sparkling water at fancy restaurants, they would place a lime wedge on top of his glass, how he had to confront the disgusting object every time he tried to take a sip, how touching the lime, even to remove it, it was so disgusting as to be simply out of the question. And yet, here it was, the cookie, with the lime flavour baked into the centre, and large transparent grains of sugar embedded in the top, begging for one last taste. The cookie was sold exclusively by a publicly traded chain of cafes that tried hard to seem international, giving itself a foreign-sounding title and printing the names of major world cities on every door, even though it had not expanded much beyond the eastern half of the United States. Aaron purchased the cookie. He knows the way he couldn't quite form the words to request it, simply presenting the cookie in front of the cashier and twitched his head, assuming, correctly, that in context the request would be understood. He noticed the way his hands moved haphazardly to remove the appropriate amount of money from his wallet. He noticed the way his change spilled out onto the counter as he tried to find the quarter with which to complete the transaction. He noticed the way he wobbled as he walked, as he took the now-purchased cookie outside. The day Aaron killed himself, he savoured his one remaining cookie, the sweetness of the embedded sugar grains, the bizarre flavour of what must have been lime. He used his tongue to wipe the remaining crumbs from his teeth, tossed the now empty bag it come in into the trash, and stepped out into the middle of the street. Wow, that was interesting. Kind of grim. One little interesting fact I would like to share with you is that Swartz's blog piece there just showed him eating a key lime sugar cookie as his last meal, the night before Aaron's departure from the world on January 10th, 2013. Aaron's actual last meal was a grilled cheese that he split with his girlfriend. I always find last meals very intriguing. My last meal would likely be a medium-rare prime rib with a cob salad and a brownie a la mode.
Since Stephen is out, Jacob, my gassy angel of a husband, will be helping me read another piece. This piece is about driving around for fun back in the olden days, which is not really possible nowadays unless you're competing in track racing or something like the Baja 1000. This piece is a tribute to the real days of being a part of the Fast and the Furious. Hi, this is Brett 2.0, otherwise known as Jacob Generation 4.6 Cherry Popsicle, and my last meal would be a traditional spaghetti and cantaloupe with a gin and milk to drink. It was a fine morning in March of 1982. The warm weather and clear sky gave promise of an early spring. Buzz had arisen early that morning, impatiently eaten breakfast and gone to the garage. Opening the door, he saw the sunshine bounce off the gleaming hood of his 15-year-old MGB Roadster. After carefully checking the fluid levels, tire pressures, and ignition wires, Buzz slid behind the wheel and cranked the engine, which immediately fired to life. He thought happily the next few hours he would spend with the car, but his happiness was clouded. It was not as easy as it used to be. A dozen years ago, things had been unchanging. First, there were a few modest safety and emissions improvements required on new cars. Gradually, these became more comprehensive. The governmental requirements reached an adequate level, but they didn't stop. They continued and became more and more stringent. Now there were very few of the older models left, through natural deterioration and other reasons. The Roadster was warmed up now and Buzz left the garage, hoping that this early in the morning there would be no trouble. He kept an eye on the instruments as he made his way down into the valley. The valley roads were no longer used very much. The small farms were all owned by doctors and the roads were somewhat narrow for the MSVs, or modern safety vehicles. The safety crusade had been well done at first. The few harebrained schemes were quickly ruled out and a sense of rationality developed. But in the late 70s, with no major wars, cancer cured, and social welfare straightened out, the politicians needed a new cause, and once again they turned toward the automobile. The regulations concerning safety became tougher. Cars became larger, heavier, and less efficient. They consumed gasoline so voraciously that the U.S. had to become a major ally with the Arabian countries. The new cars were hard to stop or maneuver quickly, but they would save your life, usually, in a 50 mile an hour crash. With 200 million cars on the road, however, few people ever drove that fast anymore. Buzz zipped quickly to the valley floor, dodging the frequent potholes which had developed from neglect of the seldom used roads. The engine sounded spot on and the entire car had a tight, good feeling about it. He negotiated several quick S-curves and reached 6,000 RPM in third gear before backing off the next turn. He didn't worry about the police down here. No, not the cops. Despite the extent of the safety program, it was essentially a good idea, but unforeseen complications had arisen. People became accustomed to cars which went undamaged in 10 mile per hour collisions. They gave even less thought than before to the possibility of being injured in a crash. As a result, they tended to worry less about clearances and rights of way, so that the accident rate went up at a steady 8% every year. But the damages and injuries actually decreased, so the government was happy, the insurance industry was happy, and most of the car owners were happy. The owners of the non-MSV cars were kept busy dodging the less careful MSV drivers, and the result of this mismatch left very few of the older cars in existence. If they weren't crushed between two 6,000-pound sleds on the highway, they were quietly priced into the junkyard by the insurance peddlers. And worst of all, they became targets. Buzz was well into his act now, speeding through the twisting valley roads with all the skill he could muster, to the extent that he'd forgotten his earlier worries. Where the road was unbroken, he would power around the turns in well-controlled oversteer, and where the sections were potholed, he saw them as devious chicanes to be mastered. He left the ground briefly, going over one of the old wooden bridges, and later ascertained that the roadster would still hit 110 on the long stretch between the old Hanlon and Grove Farms. He was just beginning to wind down when he saw it. 
there in his mirror, a late model MSV with hand-painted designs covering most of its body, one of the few modifications allowed on post-1980 cars. Buzz hoped it was a tourist or a wayward driver who got lost looking for a gas station, but now the MSV driver had spotted the roadster, and with the whoosh of a well-muffled, well-cleansed exhaust, he started the chase. It hadn't taken long for the less responsible element among drivers to discover that their new MSVs could inflict great damage on an older car and go unscathed themselves. As a result, some drivers would go looking for the older cars in secluded areas, bounce them off the road or into a bridge abutment, and then speed off undamaged, relieved of whatever frustrations caused this kind of behavior. Police seldom patrolled these out-of-the-way places, their attentions being required more urgently elsewhere, so it became a great sport for some drivers. Buzz wasn't too worried yet. This had happened a few times before and unless the MSV driver was an exceptionally good one, the roadster could be called upon to elude the other driver without too much difficulty. Yet something bothered him about this gaudy MSV in his mirror. But what was it? Planning carefully, Buzz let the other driver catch up to within a dozen yards or so, and then suddenly shot off down the road to the right. The MSV driver stood on his brakes, skidding 400 feet down the road, made a lumbering U-turn, and set off once again after the roadster. The roadster had gained a quarter mile in this manner, and Buzz was thankful for the radial tires and front and rear anti-roll bars he'd put in the car a few years back. He was flying along the twisting road, downshifting, cornering, accelerating, and all the while planning his route ahead. He was confident that if he couldn't outrun the MSV, then he could at least hold it off for another hour or more, at which time the MSV would be quite low on gas. But what was it that kept bothering him about the other car? They reached a straight section of the road, and Buzz opened it up all the way and held it. The MSV was quite a way back, but not so far that Buzz couldn't distinguish the tall antenna standing up from the back bumper. Antenna, not police, but perhaps a citizen's band radio in the MSV? He quaked slightly and hoped it was not. The straight section was coming to an end now, and Buzz put off braking to the last fraction of a second and then sped through a 75-mile-per-hour right-hander, gaining 10 more yards on the MSV. But less than a quarter mile ahead, another huge MSV was slowly pulling across the road into a stop. It was a CB set. The other driver had a cohort in the chase. Now Buzz was in trouble. He stayed on the gas until within a few hundred feet, and then he banked hard and fainted passing to the left. The MSV crawled in that direction, and Buzz slipped by on the right, bouncing heavily over a stone in the shoulder. The two MSVs set off in hot pursuit, almost colliding in the process. Buzz turned right at the first crossroad and then made a quick left, hoping to be out of sight of his pursuers. And in fact, he traveled several minutes before spotting one of them on the main road parallel to his lane. At the same time, the other appeared in the mirror from around the last corner. By now, they were beginning to climb the hills on the far side of the valley, and Buzz pressed on for all he was worth, praying that the straining engine would stand up. He lost track of one MSV when the main road turned away, but could see the other and behind him on occasion. Climbing the old monument road, Buzz hoped to have some time to get over the top and down the old dirt road to the right, which would be too narrow for his pursuers. Climbing, straining, the water temperature rising, using the entire road, flailing the shift lever back and forth from third to fourth, not touching the brakes but scrubbing off the necessary speed in the corners, reaching the peak of the mountain where the lane to the old fire tower went off to the left, but coming up on the other side of the hill was the second MSV he'd lost track of. No time to get to his dirt road. He made a panicked turn left onto the fire tower road, but spun on some loose gravel and struck a tree with a glancing blow to his right fender. He came to a stop on the opposite side of the road. The engine stalled. Hurriedly, he pushed the starter while the overheated engine slowly came back to life. He engaged first gear and sped off up the road, just as the first MSV turned the corner. 
Dazed though he was, Buzz had the advantage of a very narrow road lined on both sides with trees, and he made the most of it. The road twisted constantly, and he stayed in second, with the engine between 5,000 and 5,500. The crash hadn't seemed to hurt anything, and he was pulling away from the MSV. But to where? It hit him suddenly that the road dead-ended at the fire tower, no place to go but back. Still, he pushed on, and at the top of the hill, drove quickly to the far end of the clearing, turned the roadster around, and waited. The first MSV came flying into the clearing and aimed itself at the sitting roadster. Buzz grabbed reverse gear, backed up slightly to faint, stopped, and then backed up at full speed. The MSV, expecting the roadster to change direction, veered the wrong way and slid to a stop up against a tree. Buzz was off again down the fire tower road, and the undamaged MSV set off in pursuit. Buzz's predicament was unenviable. He was going full tilt down the twisting blacktop with a solid MSV coming up after him and an equally solid MSV coming down after him. On he went, however, braking hard before each turn, and then accelerating back up to 45 in between. Coming down to a particularly tight turn, he saw the MSV coming around it from the other direction and stood on the brakes. The sudden extreme pressure in the brake lines was too much for the rear brake line, which had been twisted somewhat in a spin, and it broke, robbing Buzz of his brakes. In sheer desperation, he pulled the handbrake as tightly as it would go and rammed the gear lever into first, popping the clutch as he did so. The back end locked solid and broke away, spinning him off to the side of the road and miraculously into some bushes, which brought the car to a halt. As he was collecting his senses, Buzz saw the two MSVs, unable to stop in time, ram each other head-on at over 40 miles an hour. It was a long time before Buzz had the roads to rebuild to its original pristine condition of before the chase. It was an even longer time before he went back into the valley for a drive. Now it was only in the very early hours of the day when most people were still sleeping off the effects of the good life. And when he saw in the papers that the government would soon be requiring cars to be capable of withstanding 75 mile per hour head-on collisions, he stopped driving the MGB Roadster altogether. A Nice Morning Drive by Richard S. Foster, originally printed in Road and Track magazine, November 1973. Welcome to the first edition of Across the Circus. I'm your host, Alex Hopper. Here on Across the Circus, we hope to give you an inside look at the political world of the month, giving you the most important stories from around the world and right here at home in America. Our first story from abroad this month comes from Bonn, Germany, where a 38-year-old suspect was arrested for leaving a decapitated human head on the Bonn District Courthouse steps. A few hundred meters away, the police also found a body missing its head and suspected to belong to the severed head. Police are looking for witnesses and have no suspicious reports of anything in the area on Tuesday. Our next world news story comes out of Cairo, Egypt, where 10 people have been sentenced to death and 50 others to life in prison for carrying out attacks against security forces in an attempt to quote-unquote sabotage of state infrastructure. According to Amnesty International, this mass trial of more than 200 people was a huge mishandling of justice and they call for the excuse of all involved. While there is no sign of Egypt's government backing down on these charges due to their outlawing of the Muslim Brotherhood after the overthrow of Islamist president Mohammed Mursi in 2013. And our last story in world news is, of course, the Russian strike on a shopping mall in Ukraine. Russia has come out making the preposterous claim that they believe to be targeting a munitions depot full of weaponry and were not, in fact, targeting civilians. Ukrainian officials Western leaders and also NATO have come out saying that this is preposterous and there's no reason to believe it. 
And that is it for World News Today. Now for something closer to home. Ghislaine Maxwell has been sentenced to 20 years for the sex trafficking charges related to Jeffrey Epstein's operation. While the customer list is still being protected and no charges brought against those on it, Ghislaine has been sentenced to 20 years and will most likely serve it out in Manhattan, where she has been previously jailed since 2019. Our last three stories today come out of the Supreme Court decisions as of late. The first one you might not have heard, the second one you might have, but the third you definitely have. The first ruling comes about the reading of Miranda rights to arrested suspects. The ruling states that there is no federal basis or constitutional basis for a suspect to be able to sue a police officer who fails to cite the Miranda rights to them. This will send the decision back to states where legislators are able to enforce different rules and punishments as well as reparations for those officers who do not cite Miranda rights to arresting suspects. The second major decision coming out of the Supreme Court this month is the overruling of New York's concealed carry law, which states that you must have express reason or need for a concealed carry and must express it to the state to be able to receive a license for one. The Supreme Court has ruled that this is unconstitutional and that whenever a law-abiding non-felon citizen requests a concealed carry permit and it meets all the criteria to receive one, they shall receive it regardless of if the government believes they have a reason to or not. This is not the first time you're hearing about the last one, but I'm happy to talk about it today. The overturning of Roe v. Wade. There has been a mass confusion throughout the country as to what this means going forward. It does not ban abortion. It sends the decision back to the states for legislatures and elected officials to decide whether or not they want to allow abortion in their state. However, this has not stopped bad actors from taking action. The group Jane's Revenge has already defaced and attacked pregnancy centers, pro-life headquarters, as well as church buildings, leaving threats and graffiti on the front of their doors, as well as firebombing one center. A historic Catholic church in West Virginia, St. Coleman Catholic Church, has also burnt to the ground. The church stood since 1984, and there's been speculations as of recently if there's any connection to the Supreme Court decision and Jane's Revenge's back actors. Thank you for listening to the first edition of Around the Circus. I've been your host, Alex Hopper. I look forward to seeing you all next month, so make sure to stay informed, stay safe, and turn off the gas stove before you go to bed. Have a wonderful night. We're gonna take on the world! Hey, it's Sammy back at the Boombox. Today is going to be a little different. We're going to be talking about game audio. Music is a huge part of everything, from movies to video games like TF2. The music in TF2 feels just right during the situation, such as an MVM, which is Man vs. Machine, or you fight robots in waves. The introduction soundtracks for MVM gradually get more intense each wave. As an example, for wave 1 of MVM, you can tell something is coming, but it isn't too intense for you. As the last wave, it sounds like the huge boss battle is coming straight for you. Another great example of music is the start of a casual round. At the start of the round, you are ready, and as soon as you are released, you feel like you can capture, defend, or do anything. The start music really adds motivation for that. For the next and final example, I will be talking about outro music. Once the round ends, you can hear one out of three outro songs. The first one is a winning song. When you win a round, you hear this great feeling of success and the song really adds to that.
As for the second outro, it is a losing song. This one gives more of a disappointing feeling, despite you still having fun in the game. For the final song, it is a stalemate song. This one isn't common due to the matchmaking parts of TF2, but it is a mix of a good and disappointing song. Either way, the songs are a great addition to TF2 and really add to the atmosphere of the game overall. TF2 has nine classes with individual personalities, but what would be a great character without the amazing voice talents? I'll give a few long but good examples of what I'm talking about. First is a scout. The scout, whose real name is Jeremy, is an American hailing from South Boston, but somehow has a Bronx accent. He is a narcissistic braggart with an ego the size of the Soviet Union. Scout is always ready to hype himself up and trash talk his enemies. As a result, his voice lines really add up to this story. I love all the classes, but I can confirm Scout is definitely the craziest class. Um, I, I don't even know where to start with you. I mean, do you even know who you're talking to? Do, do you have any idea, any idea who I am? Basically, kind of a big deal. Okay. <laughs> Grass grows, birds fly, sun shines, and brother, I hurt people. Boink! I'm a force of nature. Boink! If you were from where I was from, you'd be f***ing dead. Woo! The next example is the Heavy. Heavy is the most iconic, as well as the most cruel and bullied, most comical of the Team Fortress characters. He also has a love for his minigun, which he has named Sasha. It is more likely of a case of him simply showing his love for his weapon of choice as his pride and joy than a case of mental illness. I am heavy weapons guy. And this is my weapon. She weighs 150 kilograms and fires $200 custom tool cartridges at 10,000 rounds per minute. It costs $400,000 to fire this weapon for 12 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, who touched Sasha? Alright. Who touched my gun? Some people think they can outsmart me. Maybe. Maybe. I've yet to meet one that can outsmart Bullet. You can tell from his deep, strong voice that he is not the guy you want to mess with. Not only that, he started a Putis raid. Put the Spencer here. As for the last example, this mercenary has lost their medical license and gone crazy. In fact, he even stole one of his patient's skeletons. Medic is a maniacal scientist, shown to much, like the other characters, Enjoy violence at great heights, as shown in his voice lines in Meet the Team video, where he keeps varying organs, including a dismembered head of the blue spy, ready for use inside a fridge. When Medic speaks, he can sound normal at times, but when he acts up, he is the craziest person in the team. That's how I lost my medical license. <laughs> Archimedes! No! It's filthy in there. Ugh. Birds. 
Now, most hearts couldn't withstand this voltage. But I'm fairly certain your heart... What was noise? The sound of progress, my friend. Ah, perfect. Kill me later. Where was I? There we go. Come on. Come on. <laughs> oh, that looks good. Very nice there. Should I be awake for this? <laughs> then no. But as long as you are, could you hold your hip cage open a bit? I can't seem... Ah! Oh, don't be such a baby. Ribs grow back? No, they don't. What happens now? Now? <laughs> Let's go practice medicine. Sound effects. This part of audio isn't as important, but can really enhance the experience. In a battlefield, nothing is quiet. There's always a gun being shot or a rocket being fired, and these sound effects really put that into perspective. I'm pretty sure when you fire a gun it won't be silent, or if you applied an uber charge, it wouldn't be like a small needle. I think it would be a big gun sound when the Uber is released. It is a huge beam of healing with electricity. With the Uber charge sound effect, it sounds just like it. Same with crits, too, which is a critical hit. The audio in TF2 has helped since 2007, making the game feel more realistic, yet still keeping the cartoony charm that it has today. Huh, okay. That was four times my regular script's length. Shout out to my little brother James for doing this script for me. I've been really busy in real life, and, you know, he was kind enough to take care of this script. Next time, I'll write it. But I just want to give credit to my little brother who's working really hard to support me. This is Sammy, and thank you for joining us on the Boombox. We'll see you next time. A cowboy's a man with guts in the horse. A cowgirl is strong will and independent. Have a tilt of your stetson for one who loves the freedom of a wide open range. You with the dusty jeans, dirty boots, and rough heads. Turn off the radio, let the tailgate down. It's a western life, and for me, it's all I need. Howdy y'all, welcome back to High Noon. Now by the time this thing comes out, 4th of July has just happened. America's favorite holiday, full of barbecue and fireworks and freedom. And America's very own country music. Now, the most popular song played on the 4th of July is God Bless the USA by Lee Greenwood, a.k.a. the most perfect song ever made in history. And I'm proud to be an American, where at least I know I'm free. And I won't forget the men who died, who gave that right to me. And I gladly stand up next to you and defend her still today. Cause there ain't no doubt I love this land God bless the USA Now we're going to talk about the history of country and how it came to be. 
Country music originated in the early 12th century among working-class Americans in the South, especially in the Appalachian Mountains. Generations of musicians had mixed English ballads with Celtic and Irish fiddle songs, adding influence from various European immigrants that settled nearby. While a number of musical genres influenced country music, scholars traced the origins of country music to eastern Tennessee. In the 1920s, studios in Bristol, Johnson City, and Knoxville produced the first recording sessions, capturing the sounds of the mountaineer musicians living in the Great Smoky Mountains. At the same time, a vibrant music scene in Atlanta pulsed with the music brought by former Appalachian residents who moved to the booming metropolis to work in its cotton mills. They formed a sizable audience yearning for hillbilly music and now had the necessary ingredients to commercialize country music. When a promoter discovered Fiddlin' John Carson, country music became an official genre in the landscape of American music. First couple to the right! By the 1930s, AM radio stations across the country began to play the distinct genre. As country music became more popular, it soon grouped in other genres of music, such as western swing, honky-tonk, country boogie, and rockabilly. Artists crossed boundaries regularly, which encouraged listeners to define country music loosely. Some of its early stars, like Jimmy Rogers, the father of country music, fused gospel, jazz, pop, cowboy blues, and folk. Good morning, Captain. Good morning, Shine. Do you need another mule skinner out on your new mud line? Other notable groups like the Carter family recorded hundreds of songs including folk, gospel, and old-time ballads. Instrumentation and form often distinguish country music from other traditions. String instruments like banjos, acoustic, and electric guitars, dobro, fiddles, and harmonicas accompanied simple harmonies with rhythmic precision. The earliest country musicians rejected drums, believing they were too brash and loud. With the By the mid-1930s, however, Western swing musicians such as band leader Bob Wills added drums by the 1950s. The roster of most country music groups included a drummer. As I look at the letters that you wrote to me 
it's you that I am thinking of as I read the lines that to me were so sweet I remember our faded love In the 1950s when Kenny Rogers began his career most country and western musicians played a fusion of western swing country boogie and honky tonk influenced by tejano rhythms from southwestern united states and northern mexico these songs like marty robbins el paso recorded in 1959 reached large audiences that's the beginning of country music Out in the West Texas town of El Paso I fell in love with a Mexican girl Nighttime would find me in Rose's Cantina We'll be back after the break. Hello, my fellow meat-eaters. Now, we all love eating meat, and that's just the truth. But vegans ain't too happy with our life choices. But now with this new product... That won't be a problem no more. Introducing vegan bacon. It isn't for vegans. It is vegans. Made with the finest avocado toy soy latte fed vegans. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold up, Dale. I don't think this is legal. I, I think this may be cannibalism. Shut up, Clyde. And another thing. Are you tired of hippies that do nothing for this country, don't have a job, all they do is smoke grass? Well, now, our newly grass-fed hippie bacon. Here's one of our brand-new customers to tell you about their experience with hippie bacon. I'd have to say it's delicious. Wait, hold on. I can see sounds. I can taste goons. Help, man, what's going on? <laughs> Just ignore that, huh? But anyway, try our brand-new bacon. Yeah. Vegan and hippie varieties. This is the FBI. We have you surrounded. You are under arrest for charges of cannibalism. You'll never take me alive. I'm not going out without a fight. All right, boys, light them up. Convenient ending explosion noise. Kaboom. And we're back. Now, I hope all of you had a good 4th of July. I'd just like to thank all the troops keeping our country free. And with that, I hope all of y'all have a good high noon. out of placers how's everybody doing today it's another month and another episode of the king ducky show 
the only thing I really want to talk about is the whole Johnny Depp thing. I was on TikTok the other day and I was just baffled by the amount of people that were commenting on this one post about Johnny Depp's case. And it was a clip of him uh, laughing at the hundreds of hearsay calls from uh, Amber Heard's attorney, which would probably get yelled at for me today uh, for what I'm about to talk to you guys about. Because a lot of people in the comments were like, there's no way Johnny Depp would let this happen. There's no way Johnny Depp would have married this chick in the first place or gotten with this chick in the first place. That's what I'm going to talk to you guys about today. This has happened to me. And honestly, I feel the same way Johnny Depp does is just or how I think he feels. This is something that it doesn't like start immediately. When I was in the army, I got married to this lady. At first, she was really nice. She was awesome. She was everything I could have wanted. We connected really well. We hung out all the time. And then after we got married, stuff started to change. As soon as we got married, the first thing she got mad about was I didn't propose to her right, that I didn't do it in front of her friends where they could get pictures on the side of a hill, like with trees and a nice open sky background. That should have been my first red flag. It doesn't matter who you marry or how you propose to them. It shouldn't. If you're with the right person, how you propose to them isn't going to matter. But I digress. After we got married, we got our house and we were living together. And then I got deployed a couple weeks later. And that's when stuff started going way downhill for me. When I was deployed, she wouldn't let me sleep. Like she literally would not allow me to sleep. Uh, you can ask anyone I was in the army with. She kept me up all night. If I would to fall asleep on FaceTime with her, if I were to hang up so I could go to bed, she would call me back. She would call my phone until uh, either one of my roommates woke me up or I woke up to my phone. And this was really rude to my roommates because not only were we overseas, so the time zone was different, but I was in a room with eight other dudes. It wasn't fair to them, honestly. So throughout the deployment, I wasn't able to sleep. I wasn't allowed to sleep. I started getting in trouble for that. And I told her, I was like, hey, I have to be getting some sleep. This can't keep going on. She was like, okay. And then a couple nights later, after I actually got a few nights of sleep, she got back to that part where it was just, nope, no sleep for you. You better stay on the phone or I'm going to blow up your phone until whenever. One time I tried to do not disturb. And then she started calling my LT being like, oh my God, is he okay? So that happened. And then after a while of doing that, stuff started getting even hairier. She started doing these ultimatums like, you better get me a washing machine and dryer because ours broke or I'm going to divorce you on Valentine's Day. And then after I figure out how to where to get the money from that, you better get me this new phone or I'm going to divorce you in two weeks. After I figure out how to do that, you better start sending me $900 a week or every time you get paid or else I'm going to divorce you. I said, hey, that's my whole paycheck. Why can't I send you like 500 and you can go get a job. This was the biggest part. How dare you ask me to get a job? How dare you? I was like, what's wrong with asking you to get a job? You can't ask me to get a job when I'm the only one here watching the house saying that she was by herself the whole time and she couldn't like depend on anyone else to come watch her plants while she was at work. And I was very disrespectful to ask her to get a job during COVID. And so I was like, okay, but can I still send you like 500 because it's just you and your kid? You don't really need that much money because your grandma brings you groceries every two weeks and you should have enough to take care of you and your kid for the groceries while I'm paying the bills and I can send you 500 for like some spending cash or something. She was like, no, I need $900 a month to be able to take care of me and my kid. I don't want to get divorced because when you're not doing this... 
you're awesome. Like we connect great. We play video games on the phone while I get some free time on the weekends and stuff like that. Other times it's, uh, why'd you like this girl's post? I was like, cause she's in my unit, something like that. Cause it's her birthday. Why are you watching porn? Because I'm on a deployment and you're not here. I got needs. I got shit I got to do. I want to jack off. So I'm going to watch some porn. It got crazy. And then I got home from deployment. Actually, there's one more thing that happened to me while I was in deployment. My chain of command was looking out for her trying to be like, hey, you could get some more money rather than like robbing our soldier of his paycheck. You could start getting a paycheck by claiming child support from the father of your kid. And I told her about that. And she started yelling at my chain of command for intruding into her privacy which I don't get that. And when I got home, it got even worse. Um, I got home and I stepped off the bus, off the airplane. I see her and the first thing she wants to do is to start yelling at me about stuff that needs to be changed around the house. And that's not the first thing I want to do when I get home from deployment. So we have our fun. We do the things that couples do when they get home from deployment. And we just hung out for a little bit and then she started getting crazy. She starts to get angry and starts yelling at me for that happened during the deployment. Like I've always wanted to have like a a nice job and I didn't want to re-enlist in the army. I was like, Hey, I want to get out and I want to start doing computer stuff. I want to like start making some actual money that wasn't going to fly with her. This was a conversation we had while I was overseas. And she was like, no, if you do that, I'm going to leave you and find someone who will stay in the army so they can support me. And I was like, excuse the fuck out of me. So she brought this up again when I'm at home. And I just got home maybe to like two hours before this conversation. And she starts going off on me. She's like, why did you tell me that you wanted to, you didn't want to reenlist? Why did you say that you wanted to get a better job? And I was like, because I want to be able to make more money than I'm making now. And she says, why is it always about the money to you? I was like, because I can't make a sustainable living. If I stick with what I'm doing right now, I'm going to have to depend on the army. Or even if I get out, I'm going to have to depend on a job mcdonald's or walmart and something like that just to make ends meet working paycheck to paycheck i don't want to live that way i want to live at the point to where i don't have to worry if i'm going to be able to pay the electric bill the the wi-fi my phone bill next month because i have that kind of money coming in i don't want to have to live stress stressed out about cash if i'm going to be able to go out to eat or if i have to make ramen for this week you know and then a whole bunch of stuff starts happening. Um, her cat got sick and I definitely didn't have the money to pay for the cat to get its uh, shots. So I said, hey, to the to the nurse, I was like, hey, can we do like some sort of like payment plan? And she was like, yeah, sure. If you just uh, take a minute to sign up for it, we'll be good. My ex-wife starts to make a whole ass f- scene in this f- vet's office she was like no we gotta pay it now and i was like i don't f- have the money she's like well you better figure out how to get some and so i freaking i drove to the bank and i come back and i was like hey we cannot pay for the full thing we have to do like some sort of payment plan and so steve starts yelling at me and i look over at the nurses like f- help me but i can't say that in front of her because she's going insane and so i go outside and my sergeant calls me he's like hey where are you you need to be back on base now and i said all right give me like 20 minutes i'll be there i was like i'm at the vet's office right now with my wife and her cat and so i go back in and i was like hey i gotta go back to base now and she was like well you gotta pay and i was like look 
I can't pay for this right now. And she starts losing her mind again. So I go into the bathroom to get the fuck away from this. As I'm standing in the bathroom, she is yelling at the door. She's banging on the door. As I'm coming out, she decides that it's a great idea to just throw me right back into the bathroom. The ladies, I don't know if they're actual nurses, but the veterinarians sitting at the desk hear my back hit the thud. And I'm in uniform while this is happening. And after a while, the uh, the arguing stops. She stops yelling after I tell them. I was like, hey, I'm going to pay full price. But then I slip her a note that says, hey, my wife is crazy. Can you put me on the payment plan and just call me about it later? So that's what she does. She put me on the payment plan. She told me, all right, sir, the only uh, all you have to pay today is $200. And I was like, all right, cool. And my wife looks at me and is like, see, that wasn't that hard to pay full price. So after we get home, that all goes, well, I'm going to skip forward past a couple of things. But after a while, she starts getting mad and throwing things. And then she starts hitting me. Most of the nights, I usually didn't get much sleep because all night she would start yelling at me and stuff like that. And they'd be like yelling at me about this and yelling at me about that. And I attempted to leave and um, I wasn't able to do that. And like when I left her, I gave it like a week. I hopped on Tinder and I was like, Fuck it. Best way to get over somebody is to get under somebody new. So I was like, I'm going to try. And that didn't work. When I got back together with her, she started yelling at me. She's like, oh, you're cheating. I was like, dude, I literally told you we were done. But um, a whole bunch of stuff happened. And then one night she lost it and I was like, screw it. So she after she got done hitting me in the face and stuff, she went to go cool off in the bathtub. And I was like, cool, let me get you a drink of water. So she didn't have to get out of the bathtub. I packed every single thing I owned that could fit into my duffel bag. I hopped on my motorcycle. I literally said, fuck it. It drove three states away because she literally broke my glasses and almost broke my jaw. So after all that, I I left. I was done. So I completely understand what Johnny Depp is going through and why he stuck through it. Because while you're in it, you feel like, hey, if I can just get through the bad part, the good is fantastic. Like it's not even just to get laid. It's the emotional connection that I have with this person when they're not going absolutely crazy. So I completely understand why he stayed. I stand behind Johnny Depp and I hope he gets through whatever he needs to because God, it's hard. I've been doing it and I literally have everything that she has ever done, said, or looked at me wrong, saved to a flash drive. I have screenshots. I have videos, audio recordings, all of it saved to a flash drive. So yeah, it's not easy getting through it, but all I have to say is I feel bad for uh, for Mr. Depp. If you're in that type of situation, it can and will happen to you. And if it's bad right now, it gets worse. Get out of that situation as fast as you can because there is no, oh, well, I'm just going to see if it gets better later. No, it doesn't get better. Get out. It's going to be hard. It's going to be tough, but you can do it. Remember, everybody, I'm proud of you. You look absolutely stunning today. Crystal, your makeup is on point. I hope that all of you guys have a great rest of your day. Woo! All right, guys, that wraps up the July episode of Out of Place. I hope that you had a few chuckles from this Stephen Free episode and that you love the content in this podcast. It's that time of year that you need to be outside barbecuing, swimming, and enjoying your summer. So what are you waiting for? And if you're moving... 
Embrace your new home and make some new friends. I'm serious about the last one. Your neighbors are some of the most important people to know. You can share your lawnmowers, keep an eye on each other's properties, and even go to the store for each other. Gas isn't getting any cheaper. And wouldn't it make sense to be best friends with someone who's in walking distance? Even if I wasn't moving, it would be really a great time to just go knock on that neighbor's door and say, Hi, my name's Bob. Can we be best friends? Even if you've been living in the same place for 20 years and you don't know your neighbor, it might be time. So get on out there and don't be shy. Enjoy the rest of the month and we'll see you in August.